This evening I'd like to talk about a subject that's come up a couple of times at least in the Dharma talks and perhaps in the instructions, but we haven't covered it in much detail yet, and that's the topic of the five aggregates. The title itself sounds a little dry, (laughs) technical, perhaps boring. (laughs) The term aggregate itself, uh, which is translating the Pali term, kanda, you know, that term, aggregate, doesn't resonate with us very much, you know, in terms of, especially in terms of direct experience, you know, when I first came in touch and encountered this teaching, the first image that came to mind when I heard this teaching on the five aggregates was a big lump of rock, you know, the, the, the geological uh, term aggregate was the first thing that came to mind, and it's like, what does this have to do with anything? But this Pali term, kanda, uh, is actually not a very technical term. It's, a, it's an everyday, ordinary term in the Pali language, meaning something like heap, or bundle, or pile. So this teaching on the five aggregates is about Essentially, the, the Buddha is looking at our experience and is dividing it up into five heaps and said, everything in our experience can be found in one of these five heaps. So this teaching is really about looking at our experience. It's, an ex- it's, it's a teaching around how we can explore our experience. I think all of the Buddhist teachings were very practical. No matter how, uh, how technical they sound, they, they always come back to how we can explore our direct experience. And this teaching is no exception. So the five aggregates um, are the, the aggregate of body, which is the, basically the physical aspect of our experience. And I actually think this teaching on the five aggregates is particularly interesting because it, uh, it explores our experience from both the physical and mental perspectives, but it really looks at our mental experience in a, in a fairly finely grained way. So um, there's one physical aggregate, the aggregate of form, and the other four relate to our mental experience. And we can contrast this with the teaching on the six sense bases, for instance, which is kind of the opposite in a way. You know, in the six sense base teaching, we are looking at our body, the five aspects of our body, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and then the sense base of the mind. These are the six sense spaces that we explore in our experience. So in that teaching, the body is given a kind of an emphasis in a way. The, how, the, how the perceptual and uh, knowing faculties work through the body is, is highlighted in that teaching. 
In the five aggregates, the teaching is, the, the emphasis is reversed and the exploration is more emphasized on the mental aspects of, the, of our experience. So the five aggregates are the, the form, the body, basically. And then there is feeling, the, uh, the felt aspect of our experience, whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then there is perception, the recognizing aspect of our experience. Then mental formations, the kind of the volitional aspect of our experience. And consciousness, the knowing aspect of our experience. Now I'll go into some detail on these in in what they are and how we can actually see these as experiences in our moment-to-moment experience. But first I'd like to talk a little bit about the aggregates themselves, just a, a little bit of an overview. There are two ways that these five heaps are described in the, the texts, in the, in the suttas. They are described as kind of the, you know, form is, you know, defined as this body, the, you know, the aspects of the physicality of the body, feeling defined as the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect of experience, perception defined as the uh, the recognition that we make, the concepts, the, con- the, concept- the concepts that happen in our minds, the mental formations as all of the mental activity that happens in our minds, and consciousness as the knowing. So the, it's, it's defined kind of both in terms of what we experience, but it's also defined as a process. So there are two, actually two definitions given in the suttas for, for each of these aggregates. One where it essentially describes what we are experiencing, the, the kind of, uh, you know, what, what we notice in our experience, and then the how it happens, the process within our experience. So these aggregates cover both sides. So essentially, these processes of body and mind, as I said, they cover any, any experience you have, any experience whatsoever that you have can be found within these five aggregates. And these processes are continually going on, day and night. Whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are mindful or not, these processes just continue. Whether we are mindful or not, the, the, the mind recognizes things and knows things and feels things. The body experiences heat and cold. It's all happening all the time. So during this talk, I'd like to, to talk about both sides of the understanding of each aggregate, both the, the what, essentially the what 
is understood or experienced in body, in feeling, in perception, etc. And, and also the process, how it's understood as a process. But first I'd like to say a little bit something about why. Why bother to understand this? You know, what, what is the point? Still, it sounds perhaps a little bit dry and technical. <clears throat> First, <clears throat> because they basically include the entirety of our experience, they are an excellent framework for beginning to understand our experience, particularly the mental realm of our experience. The, the, the kind of distinctions of how our mind does what it does are very well described in this teaching. And it points us actually to the actuality of what we are experiencing. That if we can begin to see our experience through this framework, through understanding these processes at work, we begin to see them simply as processes. It begins to undermine our, um, our identification with these processes. And in fact, that is another main reason for why to understand them. The Buddha highlighted these five aggregates as being the primary ways that we cling, the ways that we identify. In fact, he, he equated, in a sense, the uh, five aggregates with, the five, he, he said, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. And, and that is, in one um, definition, a definition of the first noble truth. And so through understanding these five aggregates, we come to an understanding of this first noble truth of suffering. Through understanding how we cling to them, that we cling to them, we begin to see, too, that this clinging itself is also simply a process, a process that goes on within these aggregates themselves. Clinging is found in the aggregate of volitional formation, the volitional aspect of our experience. So we're encouraged to understand these heaps, these areas of experience, get to know them really well so we can see how they serve as magnets for clinging, magnets for suffering. So the Buddha also highlighted this teaching in terms of the process of selfing, this confused, misperceived aspect of our experience. He called it I-making and mind-making, I-making and my-making. And that these, uh, each of these aggregates particularly uh, collects this I-making or my-making. So 
understanding these aggregates is a, is a good way for us to begin to see how we create this notion of self and believe in it. So we can begin to actually deconstruct this notion of self through exploring these five aggregates. One teacher, um, Bhikkhu Analio, who is a, a wonderful practitioner, scholar, monk. Very, he's, a, he's a great researcher into the, the Pali Canon. Uh, he, he wrote a book that I highly recommend if you haven't read it yet. It's called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a modern day commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness. And in that book, uh, he talks about the aggregates and he says, from the unenlightened perspective, from the perspective that we normally view our experience, body is where I am. Feeling is how I am. Perception is what I am recognizing. Mental formations are why I am acting. And consciousness is, he puts it, whereby I am experiencing the kind of means or mode by which I experience things. So these are five ways that we tend to identify. So I'd like to describe each of these aggregates in turn and then talk a little bit about how we can actually begin to explore this in our experience. So the form aggregate. In terms of a process, the, this aggregate is described in terms of our subjective experience, basically. In one, in one sutta, in one text, he says, and this is, it's a little bit hard to, to translate this particular line, but in terms of the process of form, he says, it deforms. That's why it is called form. And the, the Pali terms, it's a wordplay that the Buddha is using. He uses a term, uh, the term for form is rupa. And the, fir- the term he uses for deforms is rupati, which is not etymologically related to rupa, but sounds like it. And so he's, he's making a pun, basically. And, and rupati basically <coughs> means something like breaks or gets injured or spoils. And so he's, he, what he's saying is that the form, our form, that, that we experience things because of like what, things that impact our world, our body. That the form element is experienced through how things contact how the world contacts us. So it's in terms of subjective experience that this aggregate is defined. So this is about looking at our 
physical experience, the physicality of our experience itself in, in a kind of an elemental way, the, the kind of, in terms of both the process and the, the what of experience, the what of form is defined as the four great elements, earth, air, fire, and water, and uh, the um, sight, sound, smells, tastes, and touches also. So, for instance, you know, the sound, the, the bell is, has form, it's got earth, and the sound, <coughs> the sound waves are also form, but they are experienced only because they impact this body. So it really is an experiential understanding of form here that this teaching is looking at. So we're, we're coming into contact with our physical experience through this, uh, the elements, vibration, tingling, pulsing, being air element, heat, coolness, being temperature, the, air, the fire element, hardness, weight, um, being earth element, and um, fluidity being water element. So we experience these. So the, 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 the teaching on form is about coming into contact with the actuality of our felt experience, the actual sense of form, not our ideas or concepts about form. Now this exploration is a really good place to begin to distinguish mental and physical experience. So often when I um, talk to somebody who's just begun this practice, I'll say, tell me what you're experiencing. You know, in a, in a, in a uh, practice discussion will be sitting there and I'll ask them to tell me what they're experiencing. And often they'll say something like, well, I'm experiencing my shoulder or I'm experiencing my, my stomach. And that is experiencing through a lens of a concept because we can't feel shoulder. We feel pressure or tension or tightness or aching or pulling but shoulder is a concept. And so this, this exploration of form is about coming into the actual experience of form. So then there are the mental aggregates, the four mental aggregates. And I'm going to just describe these briefly here um, for, uh, for now, and then I'll come back to them in talking about how to see them in our actual experience. So feeling is the, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, constantly happening in our experience. Uh, the other, um, other aspect of this teaching of the aggregates is that they all come up every single moment of experience. Unless we're in some kind of uh, formless jhana, we're experiencing body, feeling, perception, um, knowing, and mental formation in every single moment of experience. And so every single moment of experience is colored by this feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And we can recognize that. 
I talked about this the other morning. So that's the, the kind of the what of feeling. The how of feeling is this process, the process by which we recognize pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The process by which that happens in our minds. The mental process responsible for sensing and feeling. Then there's perception. Perception is the process of recognizing experience, of, of um, kind of a, a pattern matching kind of thing where we see, based on what we have known in our past, what we've seen over and over again, we come up with a label or a name for this experience that we're having. So, it's kind of green and you know you can see the color and the form of this thing that i'm holding up and you will recognize it as a glass so there is the the perception takes in all of these the perception is kind of, there's layers of perception part of the perceptual process is noticing the color and the shape of this thing and part of the perceptual process kind of layers on top of that and recognizes that it is a glass. And you know this because you've seen a lot of glasses. Now, you haven't seen maybe this particular glass. You've seen a lot, a lot of ones that look a lot like this lately, but maybe not this particular one. But because you've seen them, this process of recognition happens. So this... Um, is an extremely helpful process. <laughs> you know, we couldn't really navigate our lives without this process of recognition. And that there are some very sophisticated ways that the mind does this, particularly around recognizing faces. You know, we will recognize the face of our mother like that. It's not going to take us any time at all. So this, um, this process of perception serves us really well. And it is not something that we need to stop or need to have any judgment about. It's simply the way our mind works. The, the difficulty comes in the not seeing that this is a process of mind. Essentially, we conflate or confuse the concept with reality. And I'll talk about that more in a, in a little bit. So this perceptual process is a second kind of mental activity. Then there's the knowing process, consciousness. This is just a very simple meeting of experience. In the suttas, it's described as just the bare, simple knowing. It talks about six kinds of consciousness. Consciousness of seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, and consciousness of of mind objects. So just the very, very simple, basic knowing of experience. So before I move on to the fourth aggregate, uh, mental aggregate, I want to talk a little bit about these three, feeling, perception, and consciousness as a group. My way of understanding these three is that they are the basic processes that meet our experience. We feel experience, we conceptualize it, and we know it. 
So it's pretty fundamental to the way we navigate our world. And, you know, it's actually kind of hard to tease these three apart. In fact, there was a, um, a person in the time of the Buddha that had this question about how can I kind of tease these three apart? And he asked a question about it. I'll read this to you. The questioner says, Are feeling, perception, and consciousness, are these states conjoined or disjoined? Is it possible to separate these states from each other in order to describe the difference between them? And the answer is, these states are conjoined. It is impossible to separate these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them. For what one feels, that one perceives. And what one perceives, that one cognizes. So these three really, you know, they come together to meet our experience. We can recognize them independently, but we can't like experience feeling without having the knowing and the perceiving happening. We can't experience perceiving without having the knowing and the uh, uh, feeling happening. We can kind of see or highlight. It's like there are three facets of a, of a prism. And you can't take one of the facets off. You, you, have to, you have to have all of the facets there. So we can kind of look through one of those facets and get the flavor of feeling, the flavor of perceiving, the flavor of knowing. So we can kind of distinguish them, but we can't separate them out. Then there is the fourth mental aggregate, the aggregate of volitional formation. This, the Pali term for this is sankhara. And even in the Pali, this has two meanings. It means both um, what is put together and that which puts together. So it has both an active and a passive connotation to it, both the what is put together and the how that putting together happens. That essentially both sides, again, both sides of this are found in this aggregate of volitional formation. So the result, the what essentially, of the process of volitional formation is the many mental activities involving volition, choice, intention. This includes emotions, thoughts, states of concentration, bliss, joy, peace. It includes uh, afflictive emotions, reactive emotions, anger, irritation, lust. This is a really big category. (laughs) It includes pretty much everything that is not feeling and perception. The process of volitional formation is that which shapes our experience. I want to read a little bit of this too because the Buddha had a great way of putting things. (laughs) He says, 
Why do we call them volitional formations? And again, he's using, he's using pun here, and so the pun doesn't translate very well in this particular case. But why do we call them volitional formations? They construct the conditioned. That's why they're called volitional formations. And what is the condition that they construct? They construct conditioned form as form. They construct conditioned feeling as feeling. They construct conditioned perception as perception. They construct conditioned volitional formations as volitional formations. They construct conditioned consciousness as consciousness. So this is saying, basically, that's the five, the five aggregates that are being constructed. So the, this formation, the volitional formations, is responsible for the construction going forward for all of our experience, for all of the aggregates. So how does this work? How can we understand this? Let's just take a simple example. Um, like anger. The experience of anger itself is the volitional formation of anger. And there's a kind of a, there's a choice in there. It may not be a conscious choice that we have to become angry, but as I, as I, pointed out in my talk last week when I saw anger coming up, when I saw that, um, I saw actually a thought in the mind and I saw the mind's kind of wanting to jump on that thought and think more thoughts to get angry. I saw how that anger was intentional and how there is a choice in there. So the anger itself has this intentional quality to it. Now how does this construct the aggregates? How does this impact the aggregates, the other aggregates? Well, anger, if you think about how anger works, you know, when anger is functioning, it it distorts perhaps our face. It uh, perhaps brings up physical experience, heat and pressure in the body, tightness, clenching in the jaw, contraction in the stomach. So anger has this impact on form. The feeling aggregate, feelings, typically become unpleasant when anger is present. Perception. We tend to recognize or perceive things through this lens of anger when anger is present. For example, um, you know, an example from, from my practice, I was doing a, a metta practice at one point, and um, those of you who are doing metta practice may notice at times that there are times when the opposite of metta comes up. You know, we, we, we may talk about this in the, the metta um, practice on Tuesday nights, that, you know, that when the opposite of the metta comes up, it's not necessarily a problem, and so it's the purification of our hearts, that metta draws to the surface, that which is not metta, anger. So I was doing a long period of metta practice a month, and from time to time I just end up in this really aversive, angry state. And one of my jobs during that retreat was to do the dishwashing late at night. And I went down to do the dishwashing, and I was in one of these aversive states, and everything that I saw was just, you know, 
wrong and bad. You know, I was doing the dishes and I was having a little trouble putting the, closing the machine door and my thought was an explosion of who designed this stupid machine anyway? So you can see how the anger influences our, the way we perceive our experience. You know, when I was feeling meta, you know, I wasn't, even if I had trouble closing the, the machine, it wasn't like an explosion and, and a berating of the person who designed the machine. So when the anger is present, it influences how we perceive things, how we recognize things, what we perceive. Our consciousness is also directed, it's like this filter. You know, our consciousness is directed by this state of anger. We may see certain things, we may be conscious of certain things and completely unconscious of other things when we are in a state like that. It's as if we are attuned to picking up things that affirm this state of anger. And we will completely miss things that are not in line with that. And so it, it, it screens this, uh, these volitional formations can completely influence what we are actually conscious of. And having anger tends to construct more anger. So all five of the aggregates are created out of this volitional formation. This is why it is so important to keep track of our intentions. These intentions that that James James talked about last night. When we function, when when our, um, our mind is motivated and supported by peace and calm and generosity and kindness, it constructs our world more skillfully. So how can we use this teaching as a support for investigating our direct experience? I'll go through each of these again and look at each one. So the bodily experience. Again, looking at this, looking at our experience through the actual lens, the actual felt sense of body. Not the concept of head, of hand, of foot. But as I say these now, I'm going to name quite a few Uh, uh, elemental kinds of experience. See if you can touch into these in your experience. The earth element, heaviness, hardness, density, weight. It's a sense of your body, the kind of weight of your body. Earth sitting on earth. The air element, This is a big uh, area of experience, at least in my experience. This this is a lot. There's a lot of different air element sensations. 
vibration, tingling, pulsing, pressure, movement, pulling, pushing, tension. All of these are air element. Fire element's pretty obvious. Heat. That's what I'm experiencing right now. Not too much coolness at this moment. (laughs) We'll get some of that later on. The water element. This one is a little harder to touch into at times. You might have a sense a little bit of perhaps some stickiness or some moisture on the surface of your body. The water element is about fluidity, cohesion, liquidity. One way to contact the water element, blow into your hands and then push them together and then slowly kind of let them come apart and you'll feel stickiness there. That stickiness is a manifestation of the water element. So we can experience our physicality in these ways, the touch experience. And then there is the form within the realm of sight, the shape and color that comes in. That's also in this realm of form. In the realm of sound, the pitch and tone that hits our eardrum is also in the realm of sound. In... um, In taste, there's the bitter, sweet, salty, um, pungent, sour flavors that our tongue is designed to experience. All of these take us below the level of concept to the actual experience of form. It's actually hard sometimes to experience this actual physical experience, because we usually, in our normal way of living, experience things through our concepts. So it's hard, for example, to eat an orange and not taste orange. What's actually experienced there is a combination of sweet and sour and um, the liquid the feeling of liquid across the tongue, the tartness and the coolness. There's just this kind of mixture of experience that becomes orange like that. So this exploration, we quickly move to that recognition of what is experienced. You know, hand or orange or chair or rather than than the the um, form and or the the shape and color of our experiences it's, it's really really hard in the seeing realm to break this down to look out at this room and not see men and women sitting there you know but to just see a pastiche of form and color it's happened to me rarely on retreat where that happens where I, I, I turn my attention to something and it's just a wash of random color blotches and then suddenly it'll pop into view it's like oh that's what that's what that is 
But that's again, it's not it's not an it's not a normal place for our experience to go. We typically see things through this filter of perception. And so this teaching begins to bring us a little more closely into contact with the actual physical experience and to begin to recognize, at least, when this concept is coming into play. And I'll talk more about concept in just a minute. So the mental aggregates, the processes of the mind. It's easiest to begin to understand these processes by seeing the result of the process or, or, or observing the result of the process. So by seeing and recognizing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, for example, we start to see the process. We can begin to see the process of how feeling is felt. So I'm going to start this exploration by talking about mental formation because that's really the easiest one to see. You've all seen a lot of this. This is where we see our anger, our frustration, our irritation, our doubt, our confusion, our irritation, our calm, our peace, our happiness, our interest. This is where a lot of our experience is found. So as we begin to see these this kind of the what of our mental formations, our volitional formations. We start to see how it shapes our experience, as I talked about a few minutes ago. If anger is coming up, we can begin to see how it impacts these other areas of experience. We see how it shapes our experience. This is the process of volitional formation, this shaping aspect This seeing this, especially around mental formation, seeing how they are a process, really begins to undercut the identification with the result of that process. So, you know, seeing that anger is a process begins to undercut the identification with anger. So, Primarily, or one of the main reasons why seeing them as a process helps us is because the identification, the process of identification kind of solidifies things. It stops them. And so as we see things as a process, this process of stopping and solidifying can't, doesn't hold much truth anymore. We see through it. Another way to explore the mental formations is to look at one of the aspects James was talking about last night, this moment-to-moment intention in our experience. The mental formations, the key defining characteristic of them is that they they have an intention associated with them. There's a a choice or a, a, a volition associated with these. And so begin to see how intention works in your experience is a great exploration around this aggregate of mental formations. 
As James mentioned last night, this is easiest to see in bodily, in our bodily processes. We um, can particularly notice that we're going to move before we move when making major changes of posture. When you're sitting, before you get up from the sitting, there will be an intention to stand. And you can know that you're going to stand before you stand. Actually, you can know that you're going to um, move before you move, you can know you're going to speak before you you speak, and you can actually know you're going to um, think before you think. This is this knowing or this, this about to, this recognizing I'm about to move, is catching this factor of intention. And so we can notice this. We can begin to recognize sitting. Even if, you, if you're having a kind of a, a, a still sitting, you may notice if there's an itch, for instance, you may notice the intention to move to scratch the itch before you move. In seeing that intention, the intention itself is is neutral, but what accompanies it is going to give the direction to the shaping of the future. If it's accompanied by greed, aversion, delusion, the shaping is going to head in that direction towards suffering. If it's accompanied by non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, the shaping will be skillful. It will head us more towards happiness. And so in this noticing of this intention, we can see, often at least when we recognize, I'm about to move, I'm about to shift my posture, we can see this motivation that's associating it and begin to choose or decide. Maybe shouldn't follow through on that. How do I want to shape? How how do I want to shape my experience? So we see, and also in looking at this, that the intention comes up. The intention arises, and it conditions the next moment. So there's a there's an arising of an intention to stand, and then the standing happens. So we see that the intention kind of prods us into action. When we actually start to see this in our moment-to-moment experience, when we start to see this really clearly, this really begins to undercut one of the major ways that we identify a self. We particularly um, have a, a strong identification of self around being the one who chooses. This is a big area of selfing. Who else would be choosing? Choice chooses. Intention intends. And seeing, seeing this in our experience, when we see we're sitting, we see this impulse urge to stand, and then we watch the standing, we see this is just unfolding. We can actually see this happening without there being an I doing the choosing. We also start to see that the choice itself is conditioned. Now, an example for this, you know, suppose you, um, uh, you're, you've been driving in a car for a really long time, you know, you, you, you're driving for three or four hours and you don't have any water with you. You know, so that condition of driving 
for three or four hours without something to drink is going to condition the body to get thirsty. So thirst will arise. That thirst arising conditions the desire or the wish to satisfy that thirst. And so the intention or the, the, the plan is formed to stop to get a drink. So all of this just unfolds. There doesn't actually have to be somebody there deciding or doing this choice of I need to pull over and stop. It will unfold on its own. The condition of body, not having drink for a long time, conditions the thirst. So body conditions body. The thirst conditions the desire to alleviate that thirst. Body conditions mind. That desire to uh, alleviate that thirst conditions a plan of action. I'm going to pull over and stop. Again, mind conditioning mind. And that plan of action conditioning action in the body. Mind conditioning body. It's just a flow of body conditioning body, conditioning mind, conditioning body, conditioning mind, conditioning mind. There's no one doing it. And seeing this, actually witnessing the unfolding of this in your experience, will really begin to undercut this identification with mental formations. Then there's the feeling process. The process of feeling pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Now again, there's just the recognition of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral in our experience. And then there's the, um, the exploration of feeling itself. How feeling comes to be. I had an interesting experience of this on one long retreat. I think it was my first long retreat. I was having a meal. It was one of the simple teas and there were apples and bean dip. I think that was all we had that evening. And, um, you know, I took a bite of the apple and it was really pleasant. It was one of the best apples I've ever had. It was just about this time of year. And, you know, it was, you know, the fresh, crisp apple. And I took this this bite of this apple and this delightful tingling experience went through my whole body. It's like, oh, pleasant. And, you know, so I noticed the pleasantness of it and um, took another bite and there's pleasant. And, and then I took a bite of the bean dip and, you know, that had a different flavor and texture. It wasn't quite as pleasant as the apple. And then I took another bite of the apple and, ooh, the contrast between the bean dip and the apple made the flavor of the apple all the more pleasant. And so I was just kind of noticing. And then I noticed that after a while of taking multiple bites of the apple that the pleasantness wasn't quite as pleasant. And then i take some bean dip and then the pleasantness would come back in the apple. And, and then over the course of the meal, the, 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 the mouth seemed to get used to this whole thing and it wasn't nearly so pleasant. And so I began to see how the feeling that comes up is a result of conditions. There's the, um, the, the, in that, in that case, there was a, dis, a distinction between, you know, the pleasantness was more pleasant having the apple after the bean dip than multiple bites of apple because of the contrast between them. Same apple, 
different conditions in the mouth created different experience of pleasant. So we can, we can explore how feeling comes to be. That, that simple exercise actually showed me how feeling is a result of our choice. It's, it's a result of, of karma. How, how we feel things. Again, the shape of our volitional formations creates the feeling. I saw that directly in that exploration. So in your exploration of feeling, you can begin to explore how this feeling comes to be. It's also a very powerful place to watch the process of feeling within the whole flow of um, how suffering comes to be. I talked about this when I talked about the feeling in the morning the other day. Pleasant. The pleasant experience tends to condition a liking, a mental formation of liking. That liking uh, further conditions a wanting or a feeling like, oh, I need this, uh, conditioned by a kind of a sense of, oh, yes, and then followed by greed. So this watching how feeling plays into this whole cycle is another very powerful exploration of this feeling process. See its place, its role in the process of suffering, how suffering is created. And in being able to recognize the feeling in its own experience, as I said, it can kind of short-circuit this kind of almost nearly automatic movement to craving. We can just know pleasant is pleasant. It doesn't have to move to wanting and needing and grasping. We can just know unpleasant is unpleasant. It doesn't have to move to, oh, I hate this, I can't stand this. Then the process of perception the process of recognizing something. Now this is a, I found this to be a fascinating exploration. This is actually one of my favorite places to explore in the aggregates. It may be um, a little bit hard to see initially, but one of the easiest places to explore it is in the realm of sound, at least in my experience. You'll hear something. There's a, there's a there's a you know there's the contact of the experience of hearing, and then when the mind is pretty quiet and calm, you may notice that very shortly after that experience of hearing, there's going to be a name set in the mind or an image perhaps. So there's a sound, and then the word car appears in the mind. Or an image of a car appears in the mind. Or there's uh, the sound of a sneeze, and then an image of a person sneezing appears in your mind. That's the process of perception. There's the sound, and then there's the recognition of the sound. So this is, this is a pretty uh, clear distinction between these two. You can pick up on the actual experience of hearing and recognize that is different from this label or image that goes through the mind. So that's a place to explore this. 
a place to play with this. Another place that I've had fun playing with this is in watching the mind try to uh, recognize something that's unfamiliar. I saw this happen last night. I walked into my room and there's kind of a, a device sitting in the window and there's a cord hanging down from it that's kind of all wrapped up. And I walked in the room and the first thing that my mind went was, huge spider. <laughs> this, this black cord was there. And then, and then the mind recognized, wire cord. <laughs> you know, so, so I could see how the mind misperceived immediately. So the, the, the mind was trying to recognize something that wasn't very familiar as I walked into that room. So you can sometimes see your mind trying on various explorations of what it is. On one retreat, I walked into a very dim room, and uh, there was something in the dark on the other side of the room, and I watched my mind go through several things. The first thing it said was, grotesque being. <laughs> and, and soon after that, I was like, you know, it took like... 20 seconds to come up with vase of flowers. (laughs) So I could really kind of see this process of perception trying to to recognize. This is a process that our minds will just naturally do. It'll keep trying until it comes up with a fit that feels right. Ah, vase of flowers. Okay, that's what that is. So we can see in this exploration, actually, that this process is prone to mistake. And we also start to watch and see that we can easily confuse the concept with reality. And this, this, just play with this and see, you know, especially when perception is making a mistake, it gets a little bit easier to see this. I had one experience where the mind was confu- confused and it was identifying a sound as a pig, but then I discovered that it was actually bats. And, you know, so I could, I could really see how the, whole, the mind had created a whole story around pigs that were being slaughtered. And, you know, there was a reality there. But then when I found out they were bats, you know, it's like my whole reality changed. So we can, we can start to see through this exploration of perception how we mistake this concept for reality. This is a huge uh, place where we get caught. And in fact, the whole process of selfing, the whole process of identifying a self is a misperception. So it's within this area, this realm of perception, and the fact that perception often makes mistakes, that we delude ourselves into believing in self. Then there's the aspect of consciousness, of knowing, the process of knowing. Every experience arises with both the experience and the knowing of it. They kind of come up together. And it's possible to kind of see either side of that experience. Most of the time, in our normal way of experiencing things, we're, we're paying attention to what we are knowing, the qualities, the features of what we are knowing. We're not so aware of the knowing itself. But they both come up together, and we can 
we can recognize that the knowing is happening. It's a pretty subtle experience. It's not something we can try to do necessarily, but your mind will naturally from time to time kind of move between what is known and the fact of knowing. This kind of exploration is, is definitely not something to do. One of my teachers, Saito Utejaniya, says, nothing I tell you is anything to do. I'm just giving you information, and that information may inform you so that you can then see things in a different way. So this is along those lines in terms of information. The mind can recognize the knowing aspect of experience. One way I've explored this, or one way I've seen this um, more clearly in my own experience is, is seeing when there's something unpleasant happening in my experience. Aversion, for instance. Aversion is happening in my experience. The, ex- the aversion itself is unpleasant. And I discovered this on one retreat. I was, I was noticing the aversion. I was noticing the unpleasantness of it. And then at some point, the, the mind just shifted to aversion is known. And the whole experience shifted. The knowing feeling, and I'm not sure whether it was the knowing itself or the mindfulness, had a quality of neutrality to it. And so the experience really shifted. And and I could really clearly see, I could switch back to kind of knowing the aversion and really felt the unpleasantness of it. And then aversion is known. And I could feel the shift to more neutrality. So this is a, a way to explore it. Actually, even using the label aversion is known, or um, experience is known, whatever experience is known, can begin to point us to this aspect of knowing. So the last piece that I'll, I'll, I'll put out there, I'll say, is, the, is that, um, you know, these, as I said earlier, these aggregates are happening all the time. Whether we're mindful or not, all of these experiences are happening. Mindfulness fits in. It it is a volitional formation. Mindfulness itself falls within that aspect of volitional formation. When mindfulness comes into being, one of the ways to explore these experiences of the aggregates is that mindfulness is kind of like a mirror. It reflects what's happening. As mindfulness comes into being, it is already reflecting these five processes that are already happening. These aggregates are already going on, and when mindfulness comes in, it can just notice what's already happening. Just notice the, the feeling that's already happening, what, what's being recognized that's already happening. This has been a really big help for me in my practice just the recognition when mindfulness comes back, I don't have to do anything. There's already plenty going on. The aggregates have already been doing stuff when I wasn't mindful. And mindfulness comes in and can just meet. This is what's happening now. Just waking up to what is already taking place. No need to construct anything. No need to do anything. There's already plenty happening. Just notice what's obvious in that moment. And this exploration will ultimately help us to see how these processes function and begin to kind of loosen that 
grip of identification that we have. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.